Would you please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 41, chapter 40. Oh, sorry, my bad. Isaiah 40, chapter... Oh, verse 31. <clears throat> I will be reading from the New, New King James Version. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. So here's how this thing called Christianity works. When Christians receive blessings and victories and benefits from God, we go to his throne room and we give him thanks for those things. When we see needs in our lives and we encounter difficulties and problems, we go to ask God for help. We're looking for the real living power that can come only from the real living God. We know that there are things that God can and will do for his people that nobody else can do for us. And we also know that there are special favors that God will do specifically for his children that he has promised to no one else. We constantly pray for ourselves, we pray for others, trusting that God hears and that he answers our prayers. That's why during our corporate worship, some of the time that we spend is in prayer. And that's why we always encourage you to take time in your own private life to spend much time, quality time, in prayer, keeping in touch with the headquarters. All Christians, I think, agree with the fact that God works in our lives. If we did not come to that conclusion theologically and biblically, it would be very difficult to motivate anyone ever to pray. That is, if we come to the assessment that somehow God does not work in our lives, that God does not answer our prayers, then what would be the motivation for so doing? But the reality is that more, the more we understand God, the more we spend time studying his word and learning about him, the more we come to appreciate his sensitivity toward our needs. And the fact that not only is he sensitive toward our needs, that he is a sovereign and a powerful God that is willing and able to meet our needs in every area of life. And along with that comes a growing confidence and a growing faith in God because of those spiritual realities. Sometimes, though, while we agree, at least as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, that God works in our lives, the point of disagreement, the point of conflict sometimes comes in deciding exactly how. He works. And I've been in a lot of Bible classes, and I'm sure that you have too, where that's been the central theme of discussion. Consequently, there are a lot of folks that are confused as to what they should ask for, what they can expect from God's bountiful hand. That is, sometimes the question is even posed like this. Realistically speaking, what can I expect to happen when I pray to God? And especially if there is some area of my life where I am absolutely confident that what I'm praying for is within the framework, within the parameters of the will of God. How can I expect God to respond to me? And when can I expect those results? And what kind of quality answer to prayers can a child of God expect? Now, on the other hand, if we expect too little, then we'll ask too little. And we'll miss many of God's wonderful, bountiful blessings. James reminds us in James chapter 4, verse 2, uh, you have not because you ask not. Now, that just makes perfect sense, doesn't it? In some areas of our life, the reason that we're not blessed is because we've not asked for God's blessings. 
In some areas of our life, the reason that there aren't things, perhaps, that we have in our lives is because we haven't asked God for them. But then there's another side of that coin. If we expect too much and we ask for something that God has never promised, then we're going to become disillusioned and disappointed when that does not come about. Because the Bible also warns in the very next verse, right after it says, you have not because you ask not. In verse 3 of James chapter 4, he says, you ask and receive not because you ask it amiss. Now, again, if it's been your experience has been similar to mine, in those Bible classes, we've talked about that. What does it mean to ask amiss? What does it mean to ask God for something that, number one, he's never promised to give us, or secondly, that we know is outside the parameters of his will for our life? So what can we expect in terms of of a divine response to those kinds of questions? I think it's helpful to recognize that there are three ways that God chooses to work in our lives. And we're going to be talking about those three ways. This isn't going to take very long, but I hope that this is a lesson that will penetrate our hearts, deepen the impressions of faith in our lives in terms of what God does for us, and that we will leave this place with a greater confidence that God is responsive. He is responsive to our prayers. Number one, sometimes God responds to our prayers and to our pleads, pleads by direct intervention. Sometimes he simply chooses to intervene directly. And when he does that, it, it defies human explanation. I imagine if we suspended this lesson and then went around the room and asked you for personal examples of how God has intervened in your life in this way, we could uh, spend the next day or two here. I know I, I could give you all kinds of examples, but again, it, it defies human explanation when God chooses to intervene directly. God is sovereign. He can act in this world any way he chooses. I think that we are all in agreement on that point. And when that happens, we often say that he is working providentially. You might note that the word providence has as its root word provide. That is, that God is providing for the needs of his people. And he also has this general providence that goes out to all people everywhere, whether they're his, his children or not. Jesus verified that in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I want us to look at a couple of verses that I think are very much germane, and one of them comes from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. You got your Bibles? You turn there and look at a few verses with me. Because Jesus spent, of all the things that he could talk about, I know I say this a lot, but of all the things that Jesus could have brought up and chosen to discuss in the Sermon on the Mount, in those three chapters that are recorded for us here, early part of the book of Matthew, he chose to talk about asking God for things. And, and that's where he starts in verse 7 of Matthew 7. Ask, he says, and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be opened to you. So there again is bolstering our confidence that God will respond to our prayers. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him it knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there? This is denoting, by the way, but then the benevolence of God. God is only going to give us that which is best for us. What man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? And so God knows what's best for us. And Jesus is simply telling his disciples then and now that we can rest assured that when we ask God for his blessings in our life, he is always, mark that, he is always going to respond with what is best for us. Now, we may not think 
in our own limited way that it is best for us on occasion, but it is going to be best the best for us. He's, we're not going to ask for God that something that would be benefit us, and God, as Jesus just illustrated, God's going to turn around and give something that would be harmful for us. He says, you don't ever... You don't ever have to worry about God giving you something or doing something to you or providing something in your life that would be detrimental to you. Don't ever allow that thought to cross your mind. John says in 1 John chapter 5, got your Bible? Turn over there quickly. 1 John chapter 5. I want to read verses 13 through 15. John likewise is discussing the issue of prayer and asking God for things. 1 John 5, 13, beginning, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you pray or that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now, I I would love to be able to stop and just preach on that. That's a great verse. Confidence. By the way, you're going to see the word confidence crop up in the very next verse. But isn't that something that he can say, I'm writing this to you so that you can know that you have eternal life. We're not talking about conjecture, speculation, hoping. We're talking about absolute certain certainty that you have eternal life. That's blessed assurance. That's not overconfidence, but that is confidence in the blood of Jesus imputing his righteousness to us so that we can pillow our heads at night and know that we're saved and that we're God's people. So you can know that you have eternal life, 14 and 15. Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. John is just giving us, bolstering our confidence in God's ability and his availability to respond to our prayers in an affirmative sort of way. And I'm so glad that these verses are in the Bible. Now, it needs to be noted that the providential care of God in the lives of his children is not, is not the same thing as the specious, special miraculous gifts that we read about in Scripture, in particular in the early chapters of the book of Acts and oftentimes through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those miraculous special gifts were given to reveal and confirm the Word of God in century one. These usually are referred to in Scripture as signs and wonders. And so when you see those words crop up, you know that God is intervening directly. But in doing so, it's an important dichotomy here. In doing so, he is actually suspending natural law to bring about his will. Now, again, it's critical that we understand that these were received in a special way. They were given for a special purpose and only for a special time during the apostolic era. Still, God does work. He is still very much alive and well, and he works in his world in a real way. It is an absolute mistake to conclude that if God does not work miraculously today, that he is no longer working in the lives of his people. God is still alive and well. He still works. He still responds to our prayers, and we need to know that. When a relationship is hurting, when problems are arising in in our lives, we can implore God for help. And and both Jesus and John tell us that we can do that in such a way that we can know that God will respond in a positive way to our prayer. Sometimes he simply intervenes and and brings the solution we desire or need. But I believe that we all understand that he does not always choose to answer our prayers that way. To simply step in, intervene, and handle the situation for us or with us. After all... As someone has aptly observed, he is not a genie in a bottle. 
that we can, you know, that we can rub the bottle and he will come out and grant us three wishes. That's not what God does. That's not what he is. That's not what he's about. We must not forget that we are his servants and not the other way around. God is not sitting on his celestial throne with his hand on the phone waiting for us to call and give him orders. That's not what our prayer life is. That's not how we make our requests before God, and we need to know that. Otherwise, we will be disappointed and disillusioned. So sometimes God chooses to intervene in our lives in a direct way, but sometimes, secondly, he chooses to do so in cooperation. Sometimes God chooses to act in cooperation with natural forces and processes. Now, please appreciate the distinction. A moment ago, I defined a miracle as God suspending natural law to bring about his will. This is where God does not suspend natural law. He actually uses the natural forces in our world to bring about his will. And you can find example after example of God's acting providentially in cooperation with natural law throughout Scripture. Sometimes Old Testament, sometimes New Testament. The Bible gives us examples of this taking place. For example, in Luke chapter 10, verse 34, is a very simple illustration of that fact. An account that we're all familiar with as Bible students called the Good Samaritan. In Luke chapter 10, verse 34 in particular, we know that the Good Samaritan, when he found the man lying almost dead and bleeding on the side of the road, he picked him up. And what did he do? The Bible says he anointed him with wine and oil. Those had medicinal properties. The man apparently had enough rudimentary information about human physiology and medicine to know that that would help the man whose wounds needed to be treated, and they needed to be treated now. But he was helping this injured man on the side of the road, but he was employing the natural resources that we have around us to be able to deal with the man's need. In John chapter 9, verse 6, Jesus used something as elemental and fundamental as spittle and clay when he healed that blind man. Did Jesus need to use anything at all in order to heal the man and to bring sight to the sightless? Absolutely not. But he chose to use something as fundamental as spittle and clay to allow this man to receive his sight. That's using the the natural resources and the powers in the created world in order to bring about the will of God. So God works in cooperation with medicine, with doctors, with nutrition, Sometimes with counseling in terms of healing the mind and getting our thinking in the right direction. But you know, and I know, that there is a lot of confusion in the world today. Not just the religious world, but the world in general about how God responds to our prayers. And about how he, he uh, interacts with us by using these natural laws and natural forces. We need to work in conjunction with these known principles as well. We know that there are well-intended people, for example, who believe that if their faith in God is strong enough, they'll never have to use medicine. They'll never go to the doctor. And in fact, every now and then you'll see some news item on the the TV or internet about someone who has refused medical treatment for a child. The child died. Now they're being held responsible by the, the law of the land for negligence in the treatment or the lack of treatment of their child. It's because of confusion about how God works in this world, how he intervenes in our lives, even to answer prayers about our physical well-being. There's little point in glibly asking God for healing from my lung cancer if I continue to smoke. That's what we're talking about. You cannot ask for God for something for your life and then turn around and defy the natural forces that he has put in place in order to bring about our healing. 
It does little to pray to God to heal my marriage while I'm refusing counseling and I'm still acting in an immature and a selfish way toward my spouse. It's futile to ask God to help me lose weight while I continue poor nutrition and eating habits. Why should I ask God to make me more mature in Christ and help me to overcome some besetting sin in my life if I'm not willing to work in cooperation with God to bring about those desired results? So one of the important criteria in having a viable, working, active prayer life in understanding how God will respond to our prayers is to understand that we can't just dump it in his lap and hit, expect him to do it all. He expects us to act in cooperation as he is acting in cooperation with natural forces and natural laws. Even during the miraculous time, I've made this observation from this pulpit before, but I think it, it bears repeating now. Even during the age of the miraculous, if I've, if I've checked and read scripture correctly, in the apostolic era... God always allowed people to do something, to do something in cooperation with his power to achieve the desired results. Like go wash in the pool of Siloam, go dip in the Jordan River, and so on. Could he have healed them without their response in any way? Absolutely. But he always required them to do something in cooperation even when he was working and responding in a miraculous way. I know you've heard this story, but it works here. Here it comes. The story is told of a, of a neighbor who drove up to a farmer's house and announced that the dam just up the road had broken and the floodwaters were on their way to their community. He offered the farmer a ride in his car to safety, to higher ground, and the farmer, of course, according to the way the story goes, refused, saying, don't worry, the Lord will take care of me. And still later, as he, as he sat on his rooftop, uh, he to avoid the rising waters, a helicopter came by, offered to take him to safety, but still he refused, saying, the Lord will take care of me. The waters continued to rise. A rescue boat came along. He refused to get in, saying, don't worry, the Lord will take care of me. And, of course, eventually the man drowned. To no one's surprise, and after his death, he asked the Lord, why didn't you save me from the flood? And the Lord said, what do you want from me? I sent you a truck, a boat, and a helicopter. And that's exactly right. That's a simple story, but it does illustrate how that we can ask God for his assistance and we can ask God for his help, but we need to act in cooperation and conjunction with what we have asked for. We don't simply say the Lord take care of me. God uses natural means oftentimes in order to do exactly that. The third way that God responds to us in our time of need is by giving us grace sufficient. He intervenes directly sometimes. Most of the time in our lives, he operates providentially in a way that is in cooperation with natural law. But sometimes the problem just doesn't go away. No one in this audience tonight is naive enough to imagine that anytime someone contracts some disease and maybe even a fatal disease, we, all we have to do is just push a magic button somewhere. And by that, I mean pray to God and ask for deliverance from that illness or that disease, and God will always respond in the affirmative. There are times when God chooses not to alter the circumstances that face us, but he does give us wisdom, strength, and grace sufficient to deal with whatever obstacle it is we're dealing with. There are times when disease and accidents and trials and heartaches and losses are doled out to us in life. And you might, might note, if you examine Scripture, that God's people are not immune from those things. God has promised that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord. But he never promised that his people would be immune from difficulties and problems in life. 
And so those things are, are, are given. And they aren't going to be taken away. Not providentially. Not in cooperation with other things. Not at all. They have to be endured. And they have to be dealt with. And yet, with God's people, they still do not defeat us. And that does not mean that God has forsaken us. If I pray for deliverance from some fatal illness and God does not respond in a positive way, that doesn't mean that God has somehow forsaken me and that he no longer is answering his phone and he is not concerned at all about your welfare or mine. It doesn't mean that any of those things. God's people have often had to deal with unimaginable persecution. In fact, we've made that observation in many previous lessons. That oftentimes you'll, you'll see God's people suffering not in spite of the fact that they were Christians, but because they were Christians. Just the fact that they lined up and said, I'm going to be a disciple and a follower of Jesus Christ, meant that they were in for a lot more problems and a lot more persecution than if they just stayed out there in the world. Where, where was God's care when those persecutions came? And the answer is he was still there and he was still very much concerned. In Romans 8, 35 through 39, Paul, who I think we all agree endured much persecution and pain, lists tribulations and distress, persecution, famine, famine nakedness, peril, and sword as things that, that all Christians, at least in his day, would be called upon to endure. But you'll also remember that in the very next verse he said, but we are we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. Will we have to endure famines and persecution and nakedness and peril and, and all the things that Paul lists? Absolutely. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said so. But then he goes on to say, we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. What are you talking about, Paul? God will equip us and he will give us the strength and resources we need to be able to meet whatever difficulty it is that we're meeting. Paul himself prayed three times, as you well know, to God to remove some affliction that he referred to as his thorn in the flesh. But God did not remove it. Instead, he said, my grace is sufficient for you. Paul eventually came to understand God's response. And instead of feeling forsaken, Paul simply recalibrated his thinking on the matter. Rather than saying, God has forsaken me, I have this thorn in the flesh, I could be much more effective in my spreading of the gospel if God would remove that thorn. I prayed three times, and three times he said, no, God must not be answering my prayers. He must have forsaken me. Rather, Paul comes to a completely different conclusion in terms of his own experience. You can read that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Listen to verses 8 through 10 specifically. Paul said, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. And here's the grand conclusion. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. That's what we mean by grace sufficient. God's response was, my grace is sufficient for you. Paul eventually, I don't know how much time elapsed, but eventually came to the understanding that in my weakness, God's strength can be found. When I am weak is when I realize, most of all, my dependence upon God. I think I mentioned in a recent lesson, maybe as recently as last Wednesday night, that probably the greatest apostle and greatest proclaimer of the gospel and certainly the greatest church builder ever in the history of the church had to be the apostle Paul. How did Paul keep his head about him? How did all the good things, I know there were, there were a lot of bad things, but how did all the good things that were said about him and to him because of his work in the kingdom keep from going to his head? I, I, I think part of it, 
was the fact that Paul constantly was aware of his limitations. He was aware of his weaknesses. And he came to realize that that was one of the things, one of the important things that equipped him to be the servant of God that he was. I'm simply saying to us, if we can translate Paul's experience into our own lives, rather than saying, why has God allowed this problem to stay with me? Why has he allowed this chronic illness to stay with me? Why has God not responded to my prayers to remove those things? What we ought to be doing is praising God and glorifying God like Paul did and saying, I thank you that you've given me the resources and the help that I have and help me to understand my dependence upon you and to realize that it, are you listening church, that it is not all about me. Whether Randy stays healthy or not, the kingdom is going to march forward. Whether you and I maintain our health, God is going to see his purposes and his will done in this world. Paul finally said, I now understand that out of my weakness comes his strength. And that's where we need to be when we get to this point of grace sufficient. You may remember, I know you do, that Jesus even prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane just before his crucifixion, Lord, let this cup pass from me. That communicates to us that Jesus, in human form, did not want to have to suffer the terrible pain of the cross. Otherwise, he would not have prayed three times that that cup might pass. God did not remove the cross, but what we do know from reading Scripture is that he did give Jesus the strength to endure that cross. And that's what we're talking about. This third way of responding is still from God, and it is still very much a valid form of God's care for us. When certain trials come and will not change or go away, I'm going to say that again because I I want you to really appreciate the conclusion. When certain trials come and will not change or go away, we then need to allow those trials to change us. Nothing is going to change in terms of the dynamics of my life. But God, I'm praying on bended knee that you'll change me. That I'll be a better servant. I'll be more malleable and more pliable in your hands. I'll be that clay on the potter's wheel. And I know that clay on the potter's wheel, that's not a comfortable position to be in. You don't have to be a potter to know how that works. And when a, a lump of clay is on the potter's wheel, it gets mashed into all kinds of shapes before it finally winds up the vessel that the artist wants uh, to produce. And that's where God's got us. We're on the potter's wheel. The problem is sometimes people want to jump on and off the potter's wheel, don't they? They want God to use them no matter what the circumstances in their lives may be. But then it gets uncomfortable when God starts mashing us and molding us and making us into something that we never had in mind. So we jump off. And then we jump back on because we realize life isn't working that way. Stay on the potter's wheel. No matter how uncomfortable and painful it is, learn with Paul to say, out of my weakness comes God's strength. God can use me, not in spite of, but because of my imperfections and because of these difficulties in my life. And folks, if we're aware only of God's working through direct intervention or in cooperation with human efforts, then we're going to be disillusioned when God responds in this third way. And that can, in fact, be faith shattering. If we understand that at times the healing touch of God takes the form of grace sufficient, then we'll be open to receive that from God and we will thank him for his wonderful glory. Not all children... Not all children with leukemia find that disease going into remission. From time to time, you hear and read stories of cases where it has. A brother in Christ by the name of John Claypool knew exactly 
what that was like. He had a beautiful daughter named Laura. At age eight, she was diagnosed with leukemia, and he prayed for God's intervention and for God's healing in her life, as you can only imagine. He worked closely in cooperation with countless doctors. That's the second point we talked about tonight. Eighteen months later, Laura died despite all of their many efforts to save her. John struggled with that. He grieved. I think a better word would be agonized. And then he began to allow God to help him to creatively accept what he could not change. He came to learn that all of life is a gift. And later he would write in his memoir about his love for and life dedicated to his sweet daughter. He wrote the following words. Everywhere I turn, I am surrounded by reminders of Laura. Things we did together, things she said, things she loved. In the presence of the reminders, I have two alternatives, either to dwell on the fact that she was taken away or to focus on the wonder that she was given to us at all. And that's pretty much right, isn't it? Those are two alternatives when we lose someone we love. In our lives, we often have the same two alternatives regarding some circumstance of life, and our response is going to be determined by how we choose to look at it. We can dwell on the fact and the pain of the loss Or we can focus on the wonder that life and grace were given at all. Now we're going to be called upon as God's children to face the loss of loved ones, perhaps even of children. Our children may move away. Even more seriously, they may may leave the Lord. Some will face devastating rejection and even divorce. Some will lose a boyfriend or a girlfriend to another. We may lose our precious health. But I'm telling you tonight, church, that when disastrous things happen in life, and they will, we can choose to dwell on the loss and the hurt that can be the focus in our lives, or we can focus on the wonder that life was given at all, and we can allow God to give us emotional healing and comfort and victory. These three forms of healing from God, I think, are summarized beautifully in the text that Gabe read a moment ago. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, and I want to end with that thought. They that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They shall mount up as wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. You may be thinking, I see absolutely no connection with what you've talked about tonight. Think up this way. We all all face dark and bleak times. Sometimes God responds by direct intervention and simply solves it for us. When that happens, our natural result, of course, is to rejoice and to glorify God. At those times, our hearts sing. Or in the words of Isaiah, we mount up with wings as eagles. Sometimes God responds by working in coordination with natural processes, and that's when we can run and not be weary. And sometimes he doesn't remove the problem, but he gives us grace sufficient to deal with it. And all we can do is just walk and not faint. But it's at that time when we focus on the gift, on the blessings, And again, we thank him, and I mean sincerely thank him for his grace. You see, it's not the facts that determines real success or failure in life. It's the focus. And I hope tonight that you're focused on a loving God who wants you to go to heaven. If you're not a child of God tonight, and Art leads us in this song in just a moment, if you will look at your life, evaluate your life the way God would, and to know whether or not you are in right standing with God, And if you're not a child of God at all, the Bible says through your faith that moves you to repent of all past sins, 
confess Jesus as God's son and be baptized to have those sins washed away, you can leave this place as a brand new creature in Christ tonight. There's a child of God who's come to not rely upon God and you've gone your own way and you need to get back on the Lord's highway and ask for the prayers of this good church. We bid you come while we stand, while we sing.